Church, if you do have your copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. If you weren't here last week, Lord willing, you got to listen online as we covered really the whole overall theme of the book of Romans, did an overview of the entire book, and uh, it was a feast for me in the week studying, and I pray it was for you as well. But today, we will dive into the first seven verses where Paul begins his letter by saying this, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, through whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Father, we, we ask that you would take the word that we've just read this morning and allow me to follow in that line of men who have explained it. Lord God, I, I despair in my own power of explaining my own strength. And I would ask that you would instead attend the preaching of your word by your blessed Holy Spirit, or the great comforter, the great communicator and inspirer. Would you help me to teach spiritual truths to spiritual men? And along the way, would you raise the dead? Lord, may those who this morning have no eyes to see the kingdom of God, see the light of the Lord Jesus Christ blazing in his glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I think it's safe to say that you can't really hear someone unless you trust someone. The words can go in your ears, but you really can't give yourself to what they're saying and receive what they're saying unless you trust them. There needs to be that collateral of trust and authority before you really come to a place that you're ready to listen and receive. You see it happen in the life of family all the time, where a brother will say to a sister, you need to clean your room. Says who? Says mom. Uh, And dad. (laughs) And then there's that atmosphere of change, right? If dad were to yell from the other room, yes, I did say that then all of a sudden there's a clear authority and trust must be believed because you can't really hear someone, can't really take in and receive it unless you trust them. Well, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, he knew that. that, In order for his words to be received, they must be recognized as authoritative. The Apostle Paul has... All kinds of spiritual sweets, spiritual treasures, spiritual truth that he wants to encourage these saints in Rome with. But he knows if they don't believe them, if they don't believe him, if they're suspicious of him, they're not sure they can trust him, then all of these of the most glorious doctrines will be like water off a duck's back. 
They'll just bounce off their eardrums and won't be received with the comfort and power they were meant to affect the soul with. And so in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, Paul does one thing. He says over and over and over again to these people, you can trust me. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, that's who I'm submitted to, called to be an apostle. I'm someone who's been sent by God, separated to the gospel of God. I have God's message, which accords with God's scriptures. It's a message who comes from God's son, who is declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. From the son, I have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith from all the nations. I want to move people to obey. I want to move people to believe. I want to see people receive my word. That's what he says. But listen, Again, we have to remind ourselves, Paul didn't know these Romans. He had never been to Rome. He didn't know them face to face the way that he knew so many of the Galatians. And so he must speak to them candidly and consistently. And if you're here this morning, believers, if you've ever wrestled with assurance or confidence that you can really believe and receive things that you've been taught. I mean, the reality is sometimes we look inside of ourselves to answer that assurance. But, but there's often something more foundational and profitable we can do, which is to understand the authority of the Word of God. To understand you can trust it when it speaks about giving you grace and peace. And the more you understand the authority and the trustworthiness of God's Word, the more your soul will warmly receive what it has to say. The more you will find that assurance and comfort that every believer longs for. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity. And and, and get this, you've, you've really had it with organized religion. Maybe you've just had it because you see so many of the abuses of authority and claims to truth. And I just want to say this morning, I am with you. In my life, I've picked up the pieces so many times in my own pastoral ministry from the abuses that happen when people abuse spiritual power. When people claim to speak for God when they're really just speaking for their own self-interest. If that kind of thing makes you nervous of religion, well, congratulations, you should be. But in the face of so much corrupt religion, Christianity even, what many people have done is decide since there's no religion, or there's no philosophy with any truth out there, I'm going to have to rely on what's in here. And so we follow our hearts. We try to be true to ourselves, to fulfill ourselves. And if we feel it, it must be right. But can I just ask you this question? Has... Has following your own heart, has following your own internal desires, has that really led you to joy? Has it really led you to peace of conscience? Or, as so many have found, has it instead led you to misery? It's it's amazing how many people following their own heart have wound up with a nasty drug addiction and a ruined marriage. It's amazing how many people following their own heart have wound up embracing the idea of casual sex. And every time they try to convince themselves it's just casual, it breaks their heart one more time. Because sex is never casual. Following self as the authority in your life might make sense when you see so much corrupt authority out there. But it never leads to joy, to peace, and above all, it never leads to God. 
I wonder if if you're here this morning and maybe you have rejected religious authority, if you ever really considered listening carefully to the way the Bible talks about authority. See, it's easy to dismiss those fundamentalists or those exclusivists or those religious zealots. But have you ever actually listened to the way that the Bible talks about authority and why it should be listened to? You may find that it doesn't sound the way you thought the Bible would sound. You may find the way Bible claims the Bible claims authority is far more winsome and winning, a far better path to peace and joy than anything you've ever imagined before. And so the Apostle Paul this morning, he begins to speak of his authority. And he starts out this sermon by claiming he is a servant. He actually starts with the authority of a servant. Authority of a servant. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, he says in verse 1. It's important, by the way, every word in Scripture is important, but it's very important that he mentions him as Jesus Christ here. Remember, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. What Paul is saying is that he is a bondservant of the Messiah, the King of the Jews, Jesus Christ. He is claiming he is submitted to God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the problem being a preacher today. It's nearly impossible for you to feel just how radical that phrase from the Apostle Paul actually is. It is is nearly impossible. Like, just picture this. Picture you get a phone call this afternoon. And on the phone, the person on the other line says, Hello, this is former President Barack Obama. I thought about doing an Obama impression here, but that would just be terrible for everyone. Um, He says... This is former President Barack Obama, and I want to encourage you to vote for Donald Trump this coming November. Because it's so important that the Republicans be set with a strong mandate to Washington. You'd be like, what? (laughs) Obama does not recommend Trump. Yeah, well listen, the Apostle Paul, or Saul, does not recommend Jesus either. (laughs) Like, we can't really even get the sense of this. It's like if Osama bin Laden, I know he's dead, but when he was alive, if he came to your door and said, Hello, my name is Osama bin Laden. I'm here because God has a wonderful plan for your life. May I show you some verses from the scripture that will show you how the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ makes you right with God? You'd be like, this can't be true. But, but it isn't like that at all. It's actually like Yahya Sinwar, one of the leaders of Hamas in the Gaza Strip, were to suddenly become converted and then pen 13 letters of the New Testament. When we read these words, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, we are talking about public enemy number one of the Christian faith. We are talking about the man who in Acts 9 was breathing threats against the church, who when the first Christian martyr was killed, he was the one holding the coats. It's like he was appearing in a terrorist video when when Stephen was martyred. That man got saved and went on to be a submitted servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now what's remarkable about this, what's so remarkable about this, is if you have ideas about truth and power, Paul just messes up all your categories, doesn't he? Because very often when we think about truth, we think the only reason people believe that a certain thing is true is so they can have power. They have a little dream have a little vision, they start a cult so they can have a little harem or start a little Bible study so they can have authority over people. 
We tend to view people as, as taking truth to use power for selfish gain. But Paul just jacks up all those categories, doesn't he? Because by embracing truth, Paul didn't gain power, he lost it. When he was a Jew persecuting Christians, he tells us he was advancing in his career ahead of many of his own age. But when he embraced Christ, he didn't, uh, he didn't gain power, he instead became a persecuted Christian. And so the authority we're talking about in the scriptures is not the authority of some selfish fool who wants to abuse power by claiming to know the truth. It's of a true servant who has died to himself because Christ has so gripped him with the truth. Paul also messes up with our categories if we have this idea, which we often do, that the reason people like to claim religious authority is so they can feel better about themselves. You know, self-righteous people tend to be fundamentalistic or dogmatic. They claim to know the truth. It props up their insecurities, makes them feel better about themselves. Paul messes with that category too, doesn't he? I mean, by writing Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, he's writing, Hey, I am not a good guy by myself. In fact, I'm a Christian killer. But because of the grace of Jesus, I have become a bondservant of Him. And so, listen, Christian authority is not self-righteous authority. Rather, God brings it to us through saved sinners who have been gutted of self-righteousness. Christian authority is not authority meant to guard your selfishness by, by making truth claims around yourself like a little castle. Christian authority is when you break down lies about yourself so you can really embrace the fact that you are a sinner with a Savior. Then speak the truth. I wonder if you've ever seen authority like that. I know you haven't because it's not present in any other religion in the world because it's a mirror of the utterly unique Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul not only has servant authority, but Paul has apostolic authority. He has servant authority, but he also has the authority of an apostle. That's what Paul continues to say in his letter, isn't it? He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Now, there's a, there's a sense, beloved, in which we can say that all Christians are bondservants of Jesus, isn't there? Right? We've all bowed a knee. True Christians serve Jesus. We cannot, however, say that all Christians are apostles. The word is used differently in the New Testament. It always means, though, sent one. Sometimes it can be used of a sent one like the messengers of the church of Corinth that were bringing a gift from another church. They were, in a sense, apostles. They were sent out with a message and a gift. It can be used similarly to a church planter or missionary, like when Barnabas was called an apostle and he goes about establishing and strengthening churches. But most often, and most importantly, the word apostle in the New Testament refers to one of those first generation of teachers who had witnessed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and had been given the privilege of speaking words directly from God. The apostles were the authoritative foundational teachers of the New Testament church. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about himself in Galatians chapter 1. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. See, what Paul's saying here is, 
is, is listen, I'm Paul. I, I didn't go to the best seminary. I didn't even consult with any Christian teacher. There was actually zero human agency to me becoming an apostle. I had a direct encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. He personally spoon-fed me the doctrines of the faith, and now I proclaim them to you. That's what the Apostle Paul is claiming when he says, called to be an apostle. But this apostolic authority should not be confused with the lies that most other religions are built on. Most other religions are built, and get this, this is so important. Most other religions are built on what is called private revelation. Muhammad met an angel. Joseph Smith met an angel or had a dream. An angelic voice dictates the Quran. Muhammad or Joseph Smith had this individual encounter, private revelation, that then goes public. That's how many of the religions of the world work. Basically, what you're called to do is to trust the personal encounter of one person that you've never met with a God you've never seen. What I love about Christianity is this is not the way it functions at all. The Apostle Paul received revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that revelation was all about what the Lord Jesus had already done publicly. What Paul went on to preach, what he received from Jesus, was something public that anyone could have seen. It was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in other religions, you have a messenger or a prophet receiving private revelation. And then, hey, you just got to take my word for it. In Christianity, you have hundreds of people receiving public revelation from the risen Lord. And then you don't have to take my word for it. You can go check the witnesses. But I'm here to reclaim to you that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. You see, this way of speaking in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul speaks as a man who would commend this truth to you as something real, something factual, something historical, something verifiable. Your faith is not based on an ancient man's dream. So it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul writes and he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Not from man, not through man. He had received something, now he was delivering it. And what was it? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present. Now why does he mention that? Why does he tell us that 500 men are still alive? Because you can go check them out. Go knock on their door and ask them if they really saw the resurrection. In fact, the New Testament documents are written so early that they can be verified by the eyewitnesses of the day. This is not a private revelation gone public. This is public revelation gone global in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is what Paul is doing. He is proclaiming apostolic authority. Then he says in 1 Corinthians 15 to finish, Then last of all, he was seen by me also. As by one born out of due time. Paul comes to us with the authority of a servant. One submitted to the Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ. He comes with the authority of an apostle. One whose commission is not from man or through man. But directly through the Lord Jesus Christ. But number three. Paul also comes to us with the authority of the gospel itself. Paul comes to us with the authority of the gospel. He says. Continuing in verse one. That he has been separated 
to the gospel of God. Now, here is the real burning center of Paul's authority. He was separated to or for the gospel of God. Now, the word gospel, as you all know, means good news. When Paul speaks about the good news of God, he means the good news about God and the good news from God. He's speaking about the good news that Jesus Christ was sent by God to die, to pay the penalty for the sins of those who will repent and believe and to be raised from the dead to show they've been declared righteous and justified. But I want you to understand something else here. When Paul says that he's been separated to the gospel of God, that is actually the highest claim to authority that he can make. How do I know that? Well, because in Galatians 1, the apostle Paul says, even if we, even if I come to you preaching another gospel, even if an angel from heaven preaches you another gospel, let him be a curse. Now, that may sound small, but this is no small deal. Listen, listen, church, that means the authority of the Christian church is not finally based in the office of apostle. It's not based in a group of elders. It's not based in a congregation. It's not based on a seminary or a group of trustees. It's not even, I know, Southern Baptists, cover your ears, based on a committee or a convention. The authority of the Christian gospel lies smack dab in the message itself. It's God's gospel. He's the one who gave it. It is his authority that sanctioned it. So listen, if apostles deviate from the gospel, the apostles lose not some, but all of their authority. If elders deviate from the gospel, they lose not some, but all of their authority. If popes and presbyters lose the gospel, they lose not some, but all of their authority. Because the entire authority, focus, and center of that authority is in the message itself. And let me just tell you, what a sweet place for us as sinners to be this morning. That God has authoritatively said, I have good news. I have sent my son to die for you and to be raised from the dead on your behalf. That alone is my gospel. The apostle Paul says he has the authority of a servant, authority of the apostle, has authority of the very gospel itself. And then he tells us that he speaks in line with the authority of the scriptures. The apostle Paul speaks and brings to us the authority of of the scriptures. Let's just read the first two verses again. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures. When we speak about the gospel, we are speaking about the events of the Lord Jesus Christ, his, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We're speaking about their significance, about how they bring us forgiveness and redemption. But we must never get the idea that the gospel started 2,000 years ago when Christ was born. The gospel was not God's new idea. The gospel was not born out of, hey, you know what, this whole Israel thing, building a holy nation, it's just not working for me, so I'm going to cash in those chips now, and I'm going to go ahead and work through Jesus. That's not the idea at all. Rather, the idea is that every page of the Bible leading up to Jesus is about Jesus. Every page of the Old Testament is promises made that will be fulfilled in Jesus. 
I meant to bring these books up here this morning, uh, but I have them in my office. But Mark Dever has done uh, the church a marvelous service in printing two big volumes. They're, they look like Russian novels, but they're actually American sermons. And the first is called uh, The Message of the Old Testament. And um, it will look very intimidating to you, but it's just one sermon per book of the Bible. I, I would just say... Fathers of families, in fact, if you are interested in that copy, here's what I'll do. Um, you come up to me and after the service, and I'll just give them to you. Because I was given them, uh, and I've read them, and they're, they're, they're a gift. But fathers of families, this would be a great two-volume set to put on yourself just as resources to read with your teens, with your families. But I love the subtitles of those books. The first one on the Old Testament is the message of the Old Testament. And the, the subtitle is Promises Made. The second, the volume of the New Testament, you guessed it, is Promises Kept. That's what's happening in your Bible. In Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, you have these promises being made. And then you have in the New Testament, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, promises being kept. Now, I must say here, there's there's a very prominent, very influential, and I hate to use the word preacher, but I will, from Georgia, by the name of Andy Stanley. He's the son of the late Charles Stanley, uh, and he's been an advocate that it, that is not a, uh, that it is an, a very effective strategy when witnessing to secular people to distance the message of the gospel from the scriptures. So his idea goes something like this. When we talk to people about Jesus, we should say, Mark said, or Peter said, or Paul says, instead of saying, the Bible says. Now, just first off, I don't know about you. Uh, But I think it only takes a relatively smart, secular person to say, Hey, Peter, Mark, Paul, Matthew, aren't aren't they from the Bible? Nonetheless, he advocates for putting these men's names first instead of the actual Bible. And then in a sermon years ago, he said, Jesus, to say the, the phrase, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is not actually helpful. Because when you say that knowing God's love is dependent on the Bible, then the person has to embrace the whole Bible. And sometimes that's hard for secular people. You know, all those sticky parts like the six days of creation, the walls of Jericho falling down, promises of virgins giving birth, etc., So so we ought not talk about the whole Bible and make people depend on it. Rather, we ought to only talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and get them to firmly believe that. Then we can deal with the rest of the Bible. All I want to say to that is is this is so far from the Apostle Paul's method. That, That is so far from the way the Apostle Paul proceeds. He says, I want you to know that my gospel lines up with the whole Bible. Yes, there's difficult things in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament is faith strengthening. It's in the Old Testament where it says there will be a king from the tribe of Judah, and then Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. It's the Old Testament says that from a virgin he would be born, and then Jesus is born of a virgin. It's the book of Micah that says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, and Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Not only that, but these marvelous ways in which the prophecies were fulfilled, far from undermining faith in a secular person, may be used of God to strengthen secular people so that they're not secular people anymore and they embrace the spiritual Bible God has given to us. And so when Paul speaks to us with the authority of a servant, he's telling us that everything he says is in line with the scriptures itself. And so 
He says he's the authority of a servant, the authority of an apostle, the authority of the gospel of God. And then he speaks to us on the authority of the scriptures. And then he speaks to us finally and directly. I don't know. Is this finally? I think I have one more. I have application points. This is the last one. The authority of the Son himself. He speaks to us the authority of the Son. Notice what he says here in verses 2 and 3. Which he promised before through his, holy pro- or through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I can't spend too much time on this, but that, that again means from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament is all concerning the Son. The whole bit concerns the Son. And the Son, of course, is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the eternal, omniscient, omnipotent God. And this gospel is about this Son. Now, what Paul does is he begins now to walk through what the eternal Son did in history. I love this. He says... Uh, first off, he says, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. What on earth? The Son of God does not have descent? Yes, he does. If he's God incarnate, if he is sent to earth as a man taking on a full human nature, he comes as a descendant of David. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, something we should be familiar with, it tells us the son, David's son would be the head of a kingdom that would last forever. And so here we have Paul saying, my gospel is about the son. Which son? The one who was born of a descendant of David. What promises did he receive? The ones that are consistent with all the scriptures that he would be a king forever. And then Paul goes on to say this. And declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. Now listen, this is very important. I don't think Paul was saying he was declared to be the second person of the Trinity. That's true. He is the second person of the Trinity. But I believe Paul was saying that when Jesus raised from the dead, he's being declared the coronated king. He was being declared the king who is now on the throne. He had always been God, always been destined for a kingdom. But when he was raised from the dead, he was that coronated king who would bring about the obedience of all the nations. The reason I say that is because in Psalm 2 and Acts 13 tells us that very thing. Follow me here because eventually this all lands on the love of God for our soul. But but look at Psalm 2 for just a minute. Psalm 2 is about human rebellion against God. In fact, this is what we've been going over this week in our family worship time at the house. It's about how God is going to deal with the rebellion by sending and coronating His Son. And in this particular passage, He calls it begetting Him. He says, today I have begotten you. But But it's clear He's not talking about creating him, it's really speaking about putting him on the throne. Psalm 2 verse 1 says this, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? We sung that this morning already. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in peace and cast away their cords from us. And so what does God do with all this human rebellion? Well, let's continue. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. 
Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So so listen, back in the Old Testament, God, God says there is human rebellion. But the answer to that human rebellion is he's going to enthrone a king that will have the allegiance of the nations. And then you go to the book of Acts, chapter 13. And the apostles tell us this is exactly how that's fulfilled. Acts 13, verse 32. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. And it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Do you see what's being said there? Paul's saying, My gospel concerns the son. The son is the descendant of David who has been promised to reign forever. And at his resurrection, I declared him my son. He was coronated to rule and reign over all the nations. Now, listen, if you get that, follow me. I know we're getting thick here. That's okay. If you get that, Paul's commission then makes all kinds of sense. Look what, what Paul says, this gospel is about the Son. And then look what he says in verses 3 to 6 again. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born the seed of David, according to flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So listen, he's basically saying, this Jesus, the one who will rule and reign forever, is now enthroned. And he's the one that has commissioned me as an apostle to extend that reign all over the world. Even to you who are in Rome. Friends, this is a different kind of authority than anything you've ever encountered. This is servant authority, it's apostolic authority, it's the authority of God's gospel, the authority of God's scriptures, and the authority of God's Son, all meant to create universal obedience among all peoples everywhere. And so in light of that, I just want to finish by making a few practical applications in light of this authority of the Son of God. The first practical application is this. We ought to give the Lord the obedience of faith. Give the Lord the obedience of faith. That's what it says in the text, right? He says Paul was commissioned to bring the obedience of faith among all nations for his name. Now, there's a big debate here. What what does that mean? What is the obedience of faith? Is it the obedience of believing? I mean, Jesus did say he commands to repent and believe. So it's obedient to believe. Or is obedience of faith the obedience that comes from believing? Right? When, When you begin changing your life, when you begin walking in a different way. Which is it? Yes. I I think it's really the the same either way. You are called in response to Jesus Christ to believe Him, trust Him. Not to offer Him your works or try to earn your way to heaven, but to trust that the Son has done everything for your salvation. But when you believe that Son, it will create an obedience in your heart. The one Romans 6 talks about in verse 17 when it says, Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So, beloved, if you believe that Jesus is the authority, it ought to revamp your view 
of all authority. Authority from God is not something abusive or manipulative. It's something good meant to lead you to a Savior. But then notice this, because to me this is just the sweetest part of our text. Once Paul says you need to trust me because I'm a servant, apostle, I've got the gospel of God, I'm saying everything that lines up with Scripture, and I'm speaking on behalf of the Son, you ought to believe me. What does he choose to say to these believers who are called so clearly to believe him? He says, I want you to know, you are beloved by God. You are beloved by God. Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, I don't, I don't feel loved by God. Friend, since when did your feelings become an authority over the Lord Jesus Christ? Rather instead, listen to the authority of His servant, His apostle, His scriptures, His gospel, and His son. They all say, you are loved. Then He says this, it just gets more radical. He says, not only are you loved by God, you're called to be saints. Holy ones. Set apart. Listen, some of you may have been abused at an early age and you felt defiled as long as you can remember feeling things. Some of you abused others and have felt defiled as long as you remember feeling things. Some of you have been abused and you've been abused. You felt dirty and distant as long as you can remember feeling. You say, I don't feel like someone set apart. I don't feel like someone holy to God. But your feelings are not the ultimate authority in the universe. But rather rely on the word of the servant, the apostle, the scriptures, the gospel, and the son. You are loved and you, in spite of your sin, are called to be a saint. He looks at you and sees a saint. That just drives me crazy as I think about my own sinfulness. How many times I've failed him and let him down. How many times I've said one thing and believed another. That he still, in spite of all of that, brings me to conviction and calls me a saint. Oh, what grace. Look at this promise. Don't pass over these words as you venture into Romans. Look what's next. He says then... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, grace and peace to you. Paul is saying, when I write to you, I want to communicate more grace to you. More of what you don't deserve. More of the peace that you didn't earn. And friend, this is where we really have to change our perception of the Word of God. When we read the Word of God... Certainly, we're confronted with our own sinfulness, aren't you? Every time I read God's Word, I just can't believe how many times I've broken His commands. There are times I just weep at the office thinking about, I'm so wicked. And there's a temptation again for me to stay right there. But that's not the finished story of Scripture. In spite of my sinfulness, when I read the Scripture, I need to read it to receive grace and peace. That, that through the authority of God's word, it's what the Lord has given me. He gives grace through his word. He gives peace with his word. And so if you're here this morning and when you read the Bible, there, there's no experience of grace and peace for you. Then I would suggest that either A, you may not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or B, you're reading your Bible wrong. 
You need to understand, yes, you are sinful. But the answer that's found in the Word is that it's even a grace from God to remind you that you're sinful, to lead you to His peace. We need to understand that. And in the end, you can trust it, which will grow, finally, your assurance and confidence. Boy, you talk about some assurance and confidence. What you need is a strong word from outside yourself with God's full backing to your soul. Not only will the word of God and its authority grow your assurance, but it will grow your confidence as you are called to speak to different individuals. And you are wondering, will the Bible really make a difference here? Oh, yes, it will. It comes consistent with the scriptures full of God's apostolic authority with the full sanction of the Son. Authority, friends, is a good gift meant to produce assurance and confidence. Do we have that when we're confronted with the word of God on a daily basis? We're going to have a moment of reflective silence now. And, and simply my, my call to you, my charge to you is if you're hearing this this morning and you've only lived under this sort of legalistic understanding that the Bible simply just tells you you're a sinner. Yes, it does. It says that, but it says more than that. Maybe you've lived under this reality and felt the burden of, of the law upon your heart. That's good. But it's only good in the sense that it leads you to receive the grace and peace that's offered to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you, maybe you've struggled with the idea of authority. Maybe this morning the Lord through the preaching of His Word has changed your mind. And, and, and you need to submit to that authority as Lord and King over your life. I, I pray that you would do that. It's simply a, a call out to Him, a recognition of my own sinfulness and my need for His righteousness. And the Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of any and all unrighteousness. And that's past, present, and future. You're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Take this time of momentary reflective silence to give your life to Him. But, But church family, maybe you're here this morning and you need to be reminded you are beloved by God far more than you can ever dare imagine. That you are called to be a saint in light and in spite of what you've done, of what you've done in your life. That you have been given grace and peace. And the scripture provides that as you open it up and dig into it. And the fruit and result of that should be confidence and assurance, not in yourself, but the authority that God has given us in his word. May we take this time of silence to reflect, then I'll pray and we'll sing a hymn of reflection. Father, we thank you so much for your gospel. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your apostle. We thank you for the victory of your son. Lord, we plead that you would assure our hearts as we trust your authority. Work mightily among us. For your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand together as we sing hymn of reflection?